Hey, my name is Amanda. I want to thank you for joining us today. We hope that this message inspires you, builds your faith, and helps you find your next step toward Jesus. Enjoy the message. Good morning. Morning to everybody worshiping online with us today. Uh, 30 years ago, 1993, uh, the Wolverine Shoe Company was uh, up against it and having to make a really tough decision. And that tough decision was the brand, the shoe that had brought them such profitability, that had brought them such uh, fortune, was really tanking. And they were moving towards a decision of just canceling this particular shoe because sales had dropped so badly. The shoe I'm talking about are the Hush Puppies. Uh, They were instituted in 1958. They became a sensation in the 60s and early 70s, but through the late 70s and 80s, sales began to drop off uh, pretty extensively. How many of you had at one point or another a pair of Hush Puppies? Okay, a lot of people, not here, they're not fans right here. Okay, Uh, but anyway, remember the dog? Remember the Basset Hound? Yeah, do you remember his name? Huh? You should know this. Jason is the name of the dog. That's right. Uh, Anyway, a little trivia. You can play with somebody later. By 1993, sales had dropped to 30,000 pairs. And they were really seriously about just, just stopping making hush puppies altogether. And then something unusual happened in 1994. A few young adults in the hip areas of Manhattan in the hip nightclubs and bars, started wearing hush puppies. And all of a sudden, folks saw them wearing it, and they kind of wanted to get a pair. And so they raided all the used clothing stores, got all the hush puppies that were available there, and all the stores in Manhattan selling hush puppies suddenly found themselves selling out. And then a couple uh, fashion designers which I I can't name one fashion designer at all, okay? But a couple real famous ones, apparently, started wearing these hush puppies, and it just took off. And then celebrities wanting them. And then by 1995, just two years after they were going to cancel the brand, down to 30,000 sales, they had sold a 460,000 pair of hush puppies. The next year, it quadrupled to 1.6 million, grew after that. What was it? that caused this shoe brand to go from, you know, almost going under to becoming an overnight sensation, a fad? Well, the answer to that question is found in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Tipping Point. You wrote that book a number of years ago. I I love Malcolm Gladwell, and uh, that's probably one of my favorite, is my favorite book that he wrote. And in this book, he talks about how things go from obscurity to becoming a fad. And if you want to know the answers, go read the book. I don't have time to get into it today. But um, we're talking about humility. And this series called IMHO, in my humble opinion. Now, we talk about it today, and we talk about it as this beautiful virtue. And most people, whether they're humble or not, would like to to be more humble and and see it as a a good thing. Um, But that was not the case in the first century at all. Humility was seen as, a, as weakness. It was seen as something, the stuff of slaves. 
Now, there were first century uh, people would say in the Greco-Roman world that there were certain moments when humility was called for. If you were in the presence of, say, a noble or a king, or you were in the presence of some very important influential person, of course, you would show some deferential uh, treatment to them. You would, you would show some humility, but all purpose, all around humility to be used and avert. No, no. It was, it was considered uh, it was considered shameful because remember our word comes from the Latin word humus. Humilitas, which comes from the word humus, humus means dirt, low to the ground. And first century people did not see any benefit in that. They saw it as weakness. They saw it as a disgrace. Now, especially in a culture like Greco-Roman world, Greco-Roman culture was what sociologists would call a honor-shame society. You know, half the world today is honor-shame culture. And in an honor-shame culture, the most important thing that you can attain in this world is honor, is respect, respect for who you are, what you've done. The worst possible thing that could come to you in an honor-shame culture is shame. You, you, you hide your face, and that, again, that's still the case in many cultures. Now, we're individualistic. We have other aspirations like prosperity and financial well-being and so forth and happiness. In fact, we all parents, many parents have said the same thing, right? What, you could complete this sentence. We'll say, I just want my kids to be, yeah. No first century person would have said that. Wouldn't even thought of that. Personal happiness was not high on their list. They would have said, I just want my kids to bring the family honor. And in their low moments, they would say, oh, I just hope they don't bring shame. That's how they would think about it, that bringing honor to yourself and to your family was the greatest contribution you can make at all. And so, because humility was not talking about the great things that you had done and your accomplishments, it was looked down upon. Now, why the difference today from the first century? In, in, across the, the, the Roman Empire, they, they would have looked down upon humility and seen it as a weakness. Why? What happened to cause the change? Just like what happened with hush puppies that made them become so popular? What happened with humility? Jesus happened, that's what. Even secular historians would say that the change in attitude uh, towards humility was radically affected by Jesus Christ that he changed forever. In fact, the, the shift in beginning to see humility differently started within 100 years after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Um, and it wasn't, so much, it wasn't so much his persona, because he, he said he was humble of heart. That's where we started this series. And it wasn't so much his teaching. We looked at some of Jesus' teaching around humility. It's quite a bit of that teaching. What was it about Jesus that so dramatically changed how the world looks at humility? It was the way he died. His death. Because Jesus died on a cross. Now, again, hear what I said about an honor-shame culture? In Rome, the Roman world, the most shameful way a person could die was crucifixion. In fact, Roman law would not allow Roman citizens to be crucified. It was considered so heinous, so awful, so shame-filled 
that Roman citizens couldn't be. It was the stuff of runaway slaves, foreigners, and um, um, insurrectionists. It's only people who were ever crucified. Not a Roman. And here's Jesus. Well, we look at what um, Brett recited for us a little bit ago. In verse 8, Paul writes, And being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient even obedient to death, even death on a cross. See why he says that? Even death on a cross, which would have been considered the most shameful way to die. Now, the author to the Hebrews, he picks up on this, and in, in chapter 12, verse 2, he says, for the joy set before him, Jesus, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus scorned the shame. He was more interested in the joy, that would be us, set before him because his death would mean our life. So if, if Jesus walked the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering, and carried a cross, then that should impact how we look at humility and how we see greatness. Greatness in that day, if you said, who are the greatest people in the Roman Empire? Oh, they say, well, Alexander the Great. He conquered the world with his armies by the time he was 30 years old. Or, or Caesar Augustus, he won the great Roman Civil War and conquered his enemies. And now, a new kind of greatness is introduced and changed the world. Um, this passage in Philippians 2, which you heard read so, I mean, quoted, recited so beautifully by Brad, is considered one of the grandest, most majestic passages in all of the New Testament. There, there's probably been more scholarly work done on this passage plumbing the depths of Philippians 2 than any other passage in all of our Bible. It is so great, it is so glorious about Jesus. That name we sang about, that beautiful name, that Wonderful name, that powerful name. But you know what's interesting is the context. You always look, why, why did Paul, you know, go to such heights, such grandeur in speaking of Jesus for a very kind of simple, ordinary, everyday purpose? Listen to this. Uh, right before it, he says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. See the purpose? He talks about unity and how beautiful unity is. And then he says, I want you to have one heart, one mind. Oh, the mind of Jesus. And then he goes into this glorious passage. Glorious passage. And I like how one of the translations puts it, where, where our NIV says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. One translation says, think like Jesus. Now, so how do you think like Jesus? 
I'd say that Paul shows us two powerful ways. First, you think like Jesus by thinking, less, by thinking of yourself less. By thinking of yourself less. Go right back to verse 3. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, notice he, he says selfish ambition. There's nothing wrong per se with ambition. There is something wrong with selfish ambition. Selfish ambition, vain conceit involves envy, it involves rivalry. Uh, Selfish ambition is the tendency to think a great deal about my feelings, my desires, my wants, my, my, my stuff. And if you're gonna have community and you're gonna have people unified, you can't have them running around, each of them wanting their way. It's like, Watching a group of toddlers play. You ever notice that? You get a group of toddlers in the same space, and there may be four kids and 25 toys, but they all want the one toy that the one kid has. And they use that word. It's usually the first word we come into this world speaking, right? Mine. Mine. (laughs) They're not playing together. They're going to war with each other. And the only thing is is that when we get older as adults, sometimes we just become old toddlers, big toddlers, grown-up toddlers, and you can't have unity when you're just thinking about yourself. James points this out in, in his letter. Uh, in James chapter, chapter 3, re- listen to this. He says, um, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. You know the origin of evil in our, in our Bible is, is envy. Cain was envious of uh, his brother Abel, killed him. Envy is evil. And he says, where you have selfish ambition, you have disorder. Why? Because everybody's looking out for themselves. And it's, it's not community. It's chaos. It's disorder. Um, in fact, it's the anti-community state of mind. Selfish ambition. So what does he, he does say on the positive? He says, rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And that's where I I take the quote from C.S. Lewis, great quote. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's a big difference, isn't it? I think a lot of times when we think of humility, it, it, it becomes sort of this, aw, shucks, I'm not good at anything, I'm terrible. When you ever, ever compliment somebody and, and they just don't want to receive the compliment, they say, oh, I'm not. You know, you're really good at that. Oh, I'm not any good at that. You should see how other people are good. Oh, I'm, I'm actually kind of terrible at it. God did it anyway. That's kind of a false modesty. That's not humility. Humility is not about dragging yourself down and beating yourself up. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less. And that's what he says here. If you think of yourself less, you're going to be able to give of yourself more. You're going to be able to give to others. And so when you have a person who's constantly thinking about themselves, talking about themselves, bragger, ever hang around a bragger? You know, ever hear, listen to braggers, and they feel the need to tell you how great they are. They feel the need to tell you all their accomplishments and everything they've done. Now, get to the first century, that would not have been such a bad thing if it was honest. They would have been not happy with dishonest bragging, but if it's, you know. Um, I, I, so I, I think psychiatrists have pointed this out, and I've noticed this. Have you noticed that, that um, a lot of times when people feel the need to blow their own horn and draw attention to themselves, they're often insecure, 
And as much as they're trying to convince you how great they are, they don't believe it inside. In fact, they have real self-doubt. And, and, and they lack self-worth. And they're really, bragging is sort of a way of crying out, please notice me, please say I'm important, please say that I matter. See, as, as followers of Jesus, we can retire from that. We can retire from self-promotion completely. Why? Because you have the greatest status the world could ever give, that ever could be given. You are a son or daughter of the, the Lord Most High. You are royalty. You have you have everything that you really need. Everything that really matters in this world, you have. You have the, the love of God. He loves you infinitely. He brought you into his family. He forgave you. He cleansed you. He made you a son or a daughter. Well, you don't have to promote yourself. You can simply rest in that, and that becomes the basis of community. Um, you're a child of God, a person of worth. And then he says, well, let others surpass you you are uh, look to the interests of others what's that mean just means caring for them and uh, putting their needs first can I can I suggest a couple real practical let's get that this passage uh, can you know there's the real theological depth to it but let's just get real practical for a minute how can you um, think of others more how can you let others surpass you how can you think of others first and foremost? Here's, here's one, a couple, I'm gonna give you a couple real practical ways. One is in conversation with others, when you're talking with people, show genuine interest in them. Really listen to what they have to say. And here's the, here's the thing, ask questions. You know what we do? And you see it all the time in conversations. I share something, then you gotta share something, then I'm gonna share something about me, you're gonna share something about you. So let's say your friend comes up and says, you know, I, I just got back from a trip to the Caribbean. Now, what you may be tempted to say, oh, well, I went to the Caribbean once and then go on and on about what you did and never even hear what they had to say. So instead, you could say, well, tell me about it. What was your favorite part? How many islands did you go to? Oh, really? Okay, well, which was your favorite island? Great, well, what was the best souvenir you brought home with you and just keep asking them questions you know what you're saying to that person you're really interested in them and they matter um and 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 and, and really show interest in them it's, it's curiosity we have so little curiosity today one of my one of my sons has this game he and his wife play uh about asking questions because he he we were talking about this recently and he says when they're in conversation with, with folks they will their little game is they'll start counting how many questions they ask of other people before they ask a question back and he says sometimes dad i'll ask somebody 20 25 questions before they finally ask a question to me he said one time they got up to 40 and gave up <laughs> the other person was never going to show any curiosity any interest in them so practical way ne try this next time you're in a conversation Show real interest in them and just ask questions that says, I value you. I want to hear about you. And, um, and then you go back and forth. My, my couple of my best friends, they're so good at that. They're so good at asking me questions. And I feel so honored in their presence. It's a simple way. Another, another way is what we talked about last week, just bring up again, and that's service. By serving another person, you honor them. Serving is, is one of the old spiritual disciplines of the Christian faith because we get that from Jesus. Jesus said, the greatest among you is the servant of all. 
Um, Richard Foster just wrote um, what he says probably is his last book. It's called Learning Humility. And he says in there, we begin, when we serve people, he says we begin to notice people we've never noticed before, care for people we've never cared about. We find genuine joy in the success of others and enter into the pain and suffering of others. I've seen that in, in, in ministries. I've seen people over the years get involved in ministry. Maybe they're serving the poor. And maybe they go to serve the poor in a part of town they don't usually go to. You know what happens? Or maybe they go to a prison, prison ministry. They suddenly see them as people. You begin to see them differently when you get close to another person and serve them. So that's, that's just two, two very simple ways that you can live out this passage of thinking of yourself less. Well, to think like Jesus means thinking of yourself less. It also means giving of yourself more. And it flows from that idea of service. And then here in verse 5, before he launches into this majestic hymn to Jesus, he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mind as Christ Jesus. Now, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us the story of the crucifixion. The letters in our New Testament tell us the meaning of the crucifixion, what it means, why it matters. This is the only passage in our New Testament that I'm aware of where we're told what Jesus was thinking. It's the mind of Jesus as he goes to the cross. It's the mind of Christ. Um, And what do we see here? Humility that the world has never witnessed before. So I just read this. I'm going to read this for you. I told, I told Brett after he recited that, I said, man, probably the best thing I should do is just get up and say amen and send us all home. Is that, you know, as a communicator, even just touching this, this passage means so much to me and is so great and so grand. Just hear this. Have the same mind as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature with very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Wow. Paul is giving us a powerful glimpse into the center of the universe and the God who inhabits that center. Our God is not a God who is grasping, who is clinging to power, who is wanting more power. Our God is a God who pours himself out for others. Our God is a God who humbles himself There's two great humiliations there. Did you hear the two great humiliations? First, that the incarnate, eternally existent second person of the Trinity became a human being. Jesus' suffering began in the manger, friends. He has scars in his wrists and his feet, but he also has a belly button, the scar of his humanity. He became one of us, being found in the appearance of a man. And then... 
He died. He carried a cross. N.T. Wright, the great New Testament theologian, says, as you look at the incarnate Son of God dying on the cross, the most powerful thought you should think is this. This is the true meaning of who God is. He is the God of self-giving love. You know what's at the center of the universe? Not selfishness. Not grasping. Not wanting more. But self-giving love. Isn't that so reassuring? That our God wants to give himself away. And he did. In the person of Jesus. Um, and he did it with the cross. As the old hymn writer would appropriately capture in that old hymn, the old rugged cross, calling it the emblem of suffering and shame. If you had a family member who was crucified, it would humiliate your family forever. No one would ever see you the same. You would never be highly regarded again because it would be probably the worst thing that could happen to you. And yet, Jesus carried the cross. Now, as I, as I talked about an honor-shame culture, can you see now the, the challenge the early Christians had um, leaving Israel and going into the Roman world and preaching this message? In a culture that honored power like Alexander the Great or Caesar Augustus, and, and to say that their leader was crucified? Paul talks about it in one of his letters, and he, and he says it's, that we're mocked for this, that it's, that, it's, that it's rejected as foolishness. Everywhere they went, they had this problem. Our leader died on a cross. <laughs> He's nobody then. That's shame, shame on you for even telling me that. But there was something else, and that's the rest of the story. Doesn't end there, does it? Doesn't end with the cross. Verse 9, therefore, God highly exalted, exalted him to the highest place and gave on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What? Jesus takes the cross, dies on the cross, carries the cross for us. And God vindicates him. Just a few weeks, the world will remember that vindication on the glorious day of Easter. God vindicated, raised him from the dead. And he went to the lowest place, so therefore he is given the greatest place, the greatest name. There is no name higher than the name of Jesus. As we sang earlier, there's no name more beautiful than the name of Jesus. There's no name more wonderful than the name of Jesus. There's no name more powerful than the name of Jesus because he went so low. God exalted him. And so, first century crowds who heard this message had to come to a decision. 
either Jesus was not great because he died a shameful death, or, and many did, reject the message, and that's what they believed. There's a, there's a, there's a drawing in one of the, the walls of the catacombs of somebody, non-Christian, went down there, drew a picture of a man on a cross, and put a donkey's head on it. They stupid Christians. That's how smart their God is. So some rejected it. But what? Either Jesus was not great, or they had to redefine greatness. God vindicated them. God raised them from the dead. So the world redefines greatness. It's not about what you get. It's about what you give. It's not about honor. It's about giving up all that you have. Isn't that powerful? Um, Last week I shared this definition. I like this one from the book Humilitas by John Dixon, an Australian historian. He He said, humility is the noble choice to forgo your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. And nobody did that greater or more than Jesus. He took all of his status, all of his resources, all of his influence and gave it away. And then, so he says all of this, but don't lose sight of the very simple everyday context. Let's go back to the first few verses. Why Paul says this and gives us this majestic depiction of Jesus. Why? Well, let's go back and look. Um, Verse 2, I like how verse 2 is written in the CEV, the common English version. It says here, Paul writes, now make me completely happy. Live in harmony by showing love for each other. Be united in what you think as if you were only one person. Think about that. As if we were just one person. Be united in what you think. He says, make me happy. I I like that translation. Be unified. It's about unity. Being one in Christ. You show me a community where people uh, think of themselves less less and give of themselves more and I'll show you a remarkable community Um, we have four kids are all raised and married now and having children of their own Um, but when they were young and really even to this day the thing that makes their mom happier than anything else is when they're getting along with each other the thing that brings Linda more pain more heartache more Sleepless nights is when they're not getting along and when they're fighting with each other. I know you have a hard time to believe that your pastor's kids would sometimes fight with each other, but sometimes they did. And seriously, what get Linda, what gives her more happiness is when they love each other. It breaks her heart when they're kind of snipping at each other or fighting with each other. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen much, but still, that brings her great joy. And Paul is basically saying the same thing here. He says, make me happy. Would you please be one? Get along with each other. Think of yourself less. Give of yourself more. Because this is what Jesus did. And that's the basis of our unity. Look at Psalm 131. This is not just in Paul. This is all through the Bible, the beauty of unity. This is Psalm 131. It says, how truly wonderful and delightful it is to see brothers and sisters living together in sweet unity. Isn't that great? 
How beautiful it is. Sweet unity. Nothing more beautiful than that. In fact, that's what Jesus prayed for. In John 17, in his high priestly prayer, he prayed, Lord, would you make them one? Would you, would you make them one like you and I are one? So that the world may believe and know that you sent me. You know, it's easy to disagree, isn't it? Let's just admit, it's easy. In our world, there's 101 things every day to disagree about. But you know what's hard? To disagree and still love the other person. To disagree and not give up on the other person. Or walk away from the other person. That's such a beautiful thing. And, um, man, when, that, when, when the mind of Jesus infects a church, it is just so beautiful and powerful, I believe. Again, we have all kinds of things that work against us. You know, and right now in our denomination, we have a lot of battle on where, you know, take this vote. And, and you know what I think matters most to God is not the vote, but how we love each other after it. And how we think of one another, even if we disagree with one another. That's true at everything. What matters in your family as followers of Jesus is that not that you agree on everything, but that you love each other and you serve one another. Because there's something powerful about a community filled with people who are thinking of the other person first and giving of themselves. Something so beautiful. Because here, here's the deal, friends. The thing that all of us have in common it's not our politics, it's not our station in life, it's not our socioeconomic condition, it's not any of that stuff. It's that you and I and us, all of us, bowed the knee to Jesus. He said, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. We have bowed our knee to the name of Jesus, that beautiful name, that wonderful name, that powerful name. And you love Jesus, I love Jesus, is the basis of our unity because he is the one who didn't serve his own interests but the interests of others and gave of himself. So just practically as I end this message, where do you need to think of yourself less? Maybe again you could instant, try having different conversations. Try, try that experiment of asking questions in your next conversation and just show how it honors the people you're with. Just try it. I, I think you'll see that it can revolutionize a relationship. Or maybe it's um, giving of yourself more. Maybe there's a way that you can get involved in serving, and serving that's maybe out of sight, out of mind, but a way to get you connected to somebody else that you don't think much about, or a group of people you don't think much about. Is that what God is calling you to do? I just know that God is calling us to think like Jesus. Let's pray. If you enjoyed today's message, make sure to subscribe to this channel. Feel free to share this with others that God has put on your heart. To learn more about LaCroix Church or to find your next steps, head to lacroixchurch.org. Thanks again for checking us out, and we hope to see you soon.